they were on their way to a basketball game for her. Now, there's also seven other people who were in the helicopter with them who passed away. Uh, there were other teammates of Jana, as well as um, an assistant coach and uh, some other coaches and, I guess, uh, friends of the Bryant family. Um, obviously, the pilot, pilot is deceased as well. Kobe Bryant takes a helicopter all the time. It's really how he's traveled around L.A., since he's been there and since he's been, you know, since he started making a tremendous amount of money um, playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, it's a way to beat the traffic. Obviously, in all these years, he's never had an issue, but um, now there's been a fatal crash. We don't know exactly what led to the crash. Um, There's speculation that it could have been the weather because it was incredibly foggy that day. And, of course, the area uh, just outside of Los Angeles where, uh, they were flying is a very, very hilly region, and uh, the fog was down below the tips of the mountains. So it's possible that uh, the weather played a role in it. We know that they were flying along a highway. They were cleared to fly along a highway relatively low, and then they went to make a turn. Again, there's speculation. We don't know exactly why they made the turn. It could have been they saw some weather incoming. They needed to get up above the weather. It could have been, I don't know, they're trying to dodge mountains. Uh, but in the process of making that turn, for whatever reason, the pilot needed to do an emergency increase in altitude and, you know, went up very quickly. And then after going up, they went in the other direction and uh, crashed and everybody died instantaneously. Um, there was somebody who... There's somebody who lives nearby the crash site who said that he heard everything. He said it sounded like there was an incredibly low-flying helicopter, and then he heard, quote, sputtering out and then a big boom. So, again, we don't know exactly what led to this, but uh, the speculation that I've seen is, one, is the weather, obviously. The, the LAPD didn't even fly uh, their own helicopters that day. Uh, they were going to wait till the afternoon until some of the fog burnt off. So it's possible that that played a role, the weather played a role, and then it's also possible that mechanical failure failure is an issue. He was the helicopter that he's used multiple times, all the time, is called a Sikorsky helicopter. It's from 1991. It used to be owned by the state of Illinois, um, and apparently this particular helicopter had had issues in the past, and Sikorsky had, um, you know, settled those issues. I don't know if it was through fines or what have you, but there was an example of, a, of this model of Sikorsky crashing um, years ago. Now, it's possible it's mechanical failure. The fact that they heard, quote, sputtering out leads me to believe that as well. Um, but again, it's also possible it's the weather or a mix thereof. But either way, um, you know, Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven other people are now dead. So, I mean, this is absolutely heartbreaking for his wife and uh, his other daughters. And, you know, this impacts me too because he's legitimately one of the heroes of my childhood. So, first I'll tell the story of how I heard about this and then I'll I'll dive into, uh, you know, what he's meant to me. But 
my brother-in-law texted me and he said, Kobe dead with a question mark. This was, you know, yesterday in the middle of the day. And I didn't, it didn't register when he said that. It, not, it didn't register at all. I read the words and if anything, I kind of got like agitated at him. I didn't tell him that, but I was just like, I didn't feel anything and I didn't, it didn't register. So I was just like, what is this kind of thought? And then I immediately went to Twitter and typed Kobe into the search. And the first thing that pops up is a TMZ report that says Kobe Bryant uh, has died in a, in a, in a, excuse me, a helicopter crash. And it was only TMZ at the time. And I was reading through tweets on it and everybody was kind of saying the same thing. Like, okay, maybe it's true, but it's only TMZ and it's possible that they got it wrong. So, you know, let's not go nuts here. Then what happened was it appeared like TMZ pulled the article. You click the link to go to the article and nothing pops up. So for a brief moment there, I went from thinking like there's a 75% chance Kobe Bryant just died to no, now I'm back to 50-50. And if anything, maybe even 60% on the side of he didn't die because they pulled the article. But come to find out that wasn't them pulling the article. That was the entire TMZ website literally crashing because so many people clicked on the link. Then about three minutes later, um, I believe it was an ABC reporter and then also a local Fox affiliate that indeed verified that uh, it was Kobe Bryant who had died in a helicopter crash. So I went from not knowing and not believing and just like having it not register at all and just being numb to having the reality hit me. And um, yesterday was was tough to do uh, to just go about prepping the show and focusing on other things. There was a time I thought after my dad died in 2011, one of the thoughts that you have after that is, well, you know, now if something like this happens to you, it's it's already been like you've experienced something so terrible in terms of death that nothing else will even register. But that's actually not true. (laughs) So the Robin Williams one made me really sad. And then also the Anthony Bourdain one made me really sad because, you know, he was a guy who I I enjoyed watching his show at night. And uh, it's one of those things you put on like right before you go to sleep and you watch him travel the world and eat the food and talk about the different cultures and governments and all that. And I thought it was wonderful. But But the Robin Williams one and the Anthony Bourdain one, in my mind, are nothing compared to this Kobe Bryant one. Because over the years, he's meant a lot to me. I'm a huge basketball fan. I follow uh, basketball very closely. I am the perfect age to experience Kobe's entire career, uh, the arc of his career, and his greatness. And as many people have already pointed out, for people who are in my age group, Kobe Bryant is our Michael Jordan. I'm I'm just young enough where I didn't get to experience the height of Michael Jordan's powers. I was born in 1988. I was too young, and I didn't follow basketball when he was at the height of his powers. Um, I was able to catch, like, 
the last year or two of his greatness, I have recollections of. But really, for me, it's Kobe's entire career. He turned pro in 1996. You know, again, I was born in 88. That's kind of when I started following basketball. When he was winning his championships with Shaq, that's when I was really into it, and I watched games all the time. And, you know, when he, when he won in 2009 and 2010 back-to-back championships, I was like, this guy is, he's unbelievable. The fact that he was winning in the early 2000s, now 2009, 2010, 2010, he's winning again, and he did it without Shaq. It's a thing where you begin to think, oh, there, there is no end to this. Somebody who's that great is just that great. Now, I'm not belittling all the hard work that goes in to winning, but what I am saying is you get used to Kobe on the mountaintop you get used to the idea that there's this hierarchy in the sports world, in this case in the basketball world, and he's, he's in his rightful place at the top of that hierarchy. And I'm not kidding, guys, when I tell you that, you know, throughout my childhood and beyond my childhood, Kobe Bryant felt superhuman. He really did. He felt superhuman. There are very few things you could count on in this world, but the sun going up, the sun going down, Tiger Woods winning, and Kobe Bryant dropping at least 25 and being a beast and hitting game winners, those are all, like, guaranteed. And, you know, he was just a, a totally different breed. And don't take my word for it. Take the, the players that he played against. They're, they're all the first ones to say, Oh, forget it. Kobe is, was just on, a, on another planet. He was on another planet. Unguardable. <laughs> uh, unbelievable on the defensive end as well. And really just the epitome of professional excellence at his craft. And Kobe Bryant, to me, has meant so much that, and, and you'll see a clip on this in a second. I'll play an old clip of me on this show in a second, but he literally, in part, helped me form my personal philosophy on life. I, I've called it, it, it's silly, I admit, but I call it passionism, which is, you know, you're, ta- you're taught when you're growing up that you want to be, be a multifaceted person and who's well-rounded. And in many ways that makes sense, but to me, I was, I was, I'm not wired that way. I can't do all these different things at a competent level. I have an obsessive personality. And Kobe Bryant made me feel like, oh, being obsessive about something, that's not a bad thing. Why are we supposed to, like, like, oh, you really like doing this one thing? How terrible. It's like, well, why is that a bad thing? It's not. It's not a bad thing. And if you're wired that way, why not embrace that? And, you know... He's, the, he's one of the inspirations for me realizing, recognizing, and just being totally okay with and comfortable with going all in on something, giving it 100%, giving it your all, um, never giving up, having endless grit and determination, and you know, not feeling sorry about it, not feeling weird about it, not feeling apologetic about it that this, this is an option, this is a choice. 
And in the case of Kobe, even, even compared to Michael, you think about what Michael Jordan, at the height of his, his greatness, he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go play baseball, which tells you what. To me, I look at that and I'm like, oh, so he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy doing what he did and being great at it. And to me, that almost takes away a little bit from it because it's like, okay, so are you just doing this to go through the motions? You're not doing it because it's your love. But in the case of Kobe, he never wavered. He never wavered. It was, I like basketball. I am choosing basketball, and I'm going to stop at nothing to be as good as I could possibly be. I will give 110% every single night. And that impacted me, you know, a young kid, that impacted me, and it gave me something to look at as a model, as an ideal, as, you know, embodying the characteristics of something you want to become, something you embrace. It gave me, you know, a guiding star. And... It, you, these people do not come along often, man. You know, Tiger Woods still is, is my number one. He's, he's always been, he always will be. But, you know, when I think of Kobe, he's right up there in how much he impacted me and my beliefs and how I think one should live. And um, so this one really hurt because it, it honestly, truly, always felt like Kobe Bryant was superhuman. He's not, he's not a normal person. He's almost a demigod in a way. And, you know, an idol, a role model. And uh, to hear that he died, and the way he died, with his 13-year-old daughter and seven other people on that helicopter doing something that he had done a zillion times before to take a helicopter ride from one place to another. It just ripped your heart out because you get the sense that he, he wasn't even close to done. He won an Oscar post-retiring from the NBA, and he retired from the NBA in 2016. He played his last game in April of 2016, and since then he had won an Oscar. He was totally dedicated to whatever it is that he did. He would give his all to whatever it is. And in the interviews he's had since retiring, he said repeatedly, I don't even miss it. I don't even miss basketball. Why? Because he said, okay, I gave everything I had to that when I was doing it. But now that chapter is over. I'm on to something new. And I'm 100% invested in what I'm doing now. And he loved being a dad and, and coaching his daughter and giving people lessons and guidance and being a filmmaker. Guys, I'm not kidding when I say... To this day, I watch Kobe highlights all the time. I also watch on YouTube, there's so many of these good videos of the Kobe mentality where he talks about, you know, what it takes to win, what it takes to be great at something and all this. And I regularly watch his highlights and his mindset videos for motivation. It's one of those things where I don't even realize I'm doing I don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to make a choice to watch Kobe videos. It just... You know, I get one recommended video, I click on it, and I'm off to the races, and I can sit there for two hours listening to this stuff. So, I mean, you want to talk about an outsized impact. Again, I can't, larger than life, larger than life, especially to me being the exact age that was 
just the perfect age to see the entire career and all the greatness. I mean, we're talking about a guy here who in 2006 had an 81-point game. Guys, that's not a thing. In the modern era, that's not a thing. 81-point game. Are you kidding me? In the modern era of basketball, an 81-point game? Ridiculous. This is a guy who's hit endless game winners. You're, you have a story to tell if you're a professional basketball player and you've hit one or two game winners in your entire career. Barstool Sports posted a video yesterday of Kobe, and it was like, I don't, I don't even know. I lost count. What are we talking about? Upwards of 20 game winners? He's the guy who wanted the ball in, in those last moments of the game. It's, he's a guy who, who does this? Who drops 60 points on the night they retire? Again, that's not a thing. That's not an option. That's not like on the menu of that which is possible. It's just not. And I always felt like, because I remember watching that game in 2016 and, and just soaking in the greatness and thinking like how special it is. But I always felt like just how Michael Jordan, he retired, then he came back. Like, well, Kobe could easily just come back and be a beast again and win a championship again. Because that's how you feel when this is somebody who's a role model and an idol and, you know, somebody who is such an overwhelming presence that he has an aura around him. And you know it's something special. You know you're not dealing with some normal thing here. You know you're watching greatness. So you feel like there's, and that's why people say legends never die. Because you always feel like, okay, even though he's, he retired and he's gone, he ain't gone. Like there's always that thing where, you know, you're watching a game and you're like, well, if Kobe was playing in this bitch, he'd have like 30 already. And then now to, to hear that he's gone, gone. I mean, I was sad when I, in, in 2016, when he retired, thinking I'm not, I might not see him on a court again. Again, always the, the chance for a great one to come back. But I was thinking, like, this is sad. Now that he's gone, gone, oh, forget it. Forget it. I imagine that the feeling that I have and many basketball fans have, especially in my age group, is uh, very similar to, you know, I don't know, people when Princess Diana died in, what was it, the 1990s? people who were into the whole royal family thing and from England. And I, I could see it have – the impact is just tremendous. The impact is unbelievable. And, you know, I, I struggle in doing this segment because I have no idea. I can't – my words don't do justice to the feeling of the moment. I'm not one who's usually at a loss for words. I'm not one who usually struggles to find a way to convey a message. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> I'm a professional talker. But this is one of those stories where um, there's nothing I could say that really adequately captures um, the impact that he's had on me, the impact he's had on many others. And um, it just it feels like it's not real. It feels like it's just a bad dream. It's a nightmare. It feels like this didn't happen. Because, again, you feel like this superhuman person. Honestly, in a weird way, bear with the analogy here, but it does remind me, when I was a kid, there were a couple times where my dad was really hurt. One of them was, like, just a horrendous tooth problem he had that was he couldn't sleep. It was miserable. It was hurting him all the time. 
Um, and then there was another time where he had just unbelievable back pain. He pulled his back out, and he was laid up in bed, and he was hurting. And I distinctly remember as a kid, he went from being in excruciating pain to, you know, fast forward four days into the future, and all of a sudden he's fine. And so I guess subconsciously, you know, when I'm a kid, I learned the lesson of like, oh, if somebody's really like literally a father figure, a role model, a leader, there's no burden that's too great. They just persist and get through. That's what it is. And then I remember when my dad was admitted to the hospital, he went into the emergency room because of his back pain. And, uh, you know, before I learned what it was, called me like a day or two into him being admitted. And I remember asking him, oh, are you out of the hospital yet? Oh, are you out of the hospital yet? This is a guy who went into the emergency room and had stage four lung cancer. It had metastasized from his lungs to his spine. He would die within a couple of weeks. But in my mind, in my mind, the thought was, well, I've seen my dad like this before in a lot of pain. The toothache time, the backache time. He was laid up. He was hurt. But he was fine. Because, of course, he's going to be fine. It's my dad. The childish, naive mindset. I was like, oh, it's going to be all right. This is what happens. When somebody's a leader like this, when somebody has this makeup, this fortitude, he's going to be all right. So I remember taking that call and saying, oh, are you out of the hospital yet? And the response was almost like a chuckle from my dad. Like, oh, my God. Like, he doesn't get it. And I I feel a very similar feeling at this moment because, again, He was so great, and it was so recent, and he's so superhuman. And then to hear that it's over like this, you can't, I can't fully wrap my mind around it. The feeling is like, well, it didn't really happen, right? That didn't really happen. But it happened. But it happened. Um... Of course, we can have the conversation about problems he's had off the court. Um, He was accused of sexual assault, I believe, in the early 2000s. The prosecutors dropped the case. And, um, you know, my understanding of the situation is he apologized. He had felt like the sexual encounter was totally consensual. Apparently the person he was with said the opposite. So he apologized and settled out of court, but the prosecutor did drop the charges. Um, That's always going to be something that's on his record, and it should be brought up in the context of discussing him. However, I just, one of the main reasons I'm doing this segment is to just let everybody out there know how I feel about this, because this is like a a superhuman being from my childhood, an idol who's now gone. And with that being said, I want to leave you with, this is a segment from 2015 where I'm reporting on the fact that Kobe announced his retirement. He announced it in 2015. He retired in April of 2016. Um, 
but here's me talking about it. And you could see, and I even mention it, how much he impacted me, um, his mindset, and how much that I absorbed and used uh, in my own life. And you can see the admiration I have for him, and you could see the stories of his greatness. I touch on a few of them here. Take a look. I'm actually, I'm biased because I, you know, I was born in 88. I was, you know, following, started to follow NBA seriously right when Kobe came into the league and took over and was just a basketball god for basically my entire life. And it feels like, honestly, the consistent things in my life, the sun rising, Kobe dropping at least 20 every game, and Tiger Woods winning in golf. Okay, so I have kind of a weird emotional connection to it. And I'm sad when I hear him retiring. Allen Iverson's been gone for a while. Uh, Tracy McGrady's been gone for a while. Kobe Bryant is now leaving. The air is, like, totally over, and that's a little depressing to somebody like me. But I want to explain to you real quick just the kind of desire and passion that Kobe had for the game. So here's some examples of his work ethic. He decided to lose 16 pounds for the Olympics in 2012. He was already, you know, he wasn't fat to begin with. He decided, I'm going to lose 16 pounds in 2012. He showed up at 5 a.m. and left practice at 7 p.m. in high school. Uh, He'd make high school teammates play one-on-one to 100 with him. He He used to practice by himself without a ball. He counts all of his made shots every practice and stops at 400. He did intense workouts, some people say up to four hours a day, on game day. Uh, He had Nike shave a few millimeters off of his shoes in 2008 to gain a hundredth of a second better reaction time. He ices his knees for 20 minutes, three times per day. He was doing that in order to continue to be able to play. Uh, And he watches film of himself at halftime. Now, I tell you all that, not just to show you, okay, Herculean effort, he loves the game so much, it's ridiculous, he's got passion and drive for this, so on and so forth. No, I tell you that to raise a question to you. What do you love in your life this much? Do you love anything in your life this much? I would say if you don't, you're probably missing out. Because this is what it's all about, man. You know, I'm not a religious person by any stretch of the imagination, but I do have my own goofy life philosophy. And I actually have a name for it, too, which is even more sad and pathetic. I call it passionism, which is the idea that you should have at least one thing, but probably multiple things, that you're so insanely in love with that you're happy to do this kind of work to achieve the goals associated with said thing. And understand, your time on this earth is limited. I would guess that we're not going anywhere when we die. It lights off. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's my educated guess on the topic. So since you're only conscious once, why not take advantage of that and live life to the fullest? And in my opinion, the best way to do that is exactly the kind of way that somebody like Kobe showed for basketball have that kind of passion for one thing or multiple things in your life where you give your all to it and then you get this successful, happy 
fruitful feeling knowing that you did everything in at least that realm to the fullest. And there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And I think it's something that not many people do, but if they did do it, they would be a lot happier. So, uh, Kobe, thank you for all the years of being an absolute beast on the basketball court. I'm sure you'll be successful anywhere you go from here, but you're going to go down as a legend in the game because of your passion and your drive and your hard work in this field. And that's something I remember and I'll always take with me, and I think other people would do well if they did the same thing. We're here for a limited time. I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know what you're waiting for. Do whatever that thing is that you want to work that hard for. There's a famous old saying, if you pick something you love, you never work a day in your life. So since we have limited time here and it's very, very precious and life can be taken away, it's so fragile it could be gone in a second. Why not go full bore, 100% in the direction of whatever it is that you love that much? Do you love anything that much? If you love something that much, I don't know why you're waiting. Get to work. That's the mindset, man. I got a great tweet the other day. Somebody said, after watching this old segment I did about Kobe retiring, they switched their major and they dedicated themselves to doing what they wanted to do. I love hearing stuff like that. Because that same thing that... I feel like I got from Kobe is something that that person got from me watching that segment about Kobe. This is how inspiration works. You never know when it's going to come. You never know how it's going to come. You're lucky if you get it at all. But um, he was definitely a giant inspiration on me. And I think that one of the reasons why he was so appealing to me is – I have a healthy streak of, eh, screw it, in me. There's a healthy streak of like, eh, whatever. Screw it. It's whatever. There's a lot of that in me, too. That's there for sure. So to see somebody come along who had 0% of that in them, I was like, whoa, they make them like you? That was my thought process. Like, oh, You're just on a whole nother level, aren't you? So I think that I admire people who have none of that sentiment of like, eh, whatever, in them. Because I'm always battling that aspect as well. Um, Very sad day, very sad time. Hug the people that you love. Tell your friends you love them. Tell your family that you love them. Because, again, life is so fragile, so frail, and it also feels like time is moving way too quickly. And this is, you know, one of those instances where it's a slap in the face. So, all that being said, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. Okay. Now let's move on. 
as much as we can. So this scandal slash non-scandal is, um, it's a couple days old now, but I figured why not? Let's talk about it a little bit. Now, Joe Rogan recently said in a podcast of his that uh, he will, quote, probably vote for Bernie Sanders. Now, awesome. <laughs> That's great. I like to think I played played some role in, uh, you know, him coming to that position, namely because, you know what, I'm not even going to brag about (laughs) the thing I did behind the scene. It comes across as, like, very insufferable and narcissistic, and honestly, it's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, I'm happy that he has come to the position where he said he will, quote, probably vote for Bernie Sanders. I welcome that, and, you know, I think anybody who's reasonable and thinking straight will welcome that. Now... The reaction was something else. So Bernie Sanders' team, I don't know who ultimately made the decision, but somebody in the campaign made the decision. My guess is the decision was not made by Bernie himself, and my guess is the decision was not made by the campaign manager, uh, Fasha Kier. So I don't know who made the decision, but they tweeted a video of just Rogan saying, I'll probably vote for Bernie. It was him saying that along with the thing that makes Bernie so special is that he's been consistent throughout his entire career. Um, So awesome. Great. Number one podcaster in the world with a semi-endorsement there. I say semi-endorsement because he said he will, quote, probably vote for Bernie. And he had previously said he supports Tulsi. Um, So, you know, I guess it's up in the air. Is he going to vote for Tulsi? Is he going to vote for Bernie? Does it depend on what the race is looking like by the time it gets to California? I don't know. But, you know, it's a semi-endorsement and they wanted to highlight it. And you would think that Bernie Sanders was touting the endorsement of John Wayne Gacy. You would thought, you know, he dug up the Unabomber, <laughs> and, and the Unabomber was like, love that guy, man. <laughs> because what followed was a two- or three-day festival of fake outrage. So um, you had... What originally was a lot of, like, high-profile Warren supporters, but then the media also hopped on the bandwagon and started writing these concern-trolling articles. Um, And basically, they said, hey, here's a list of all of the naughty things Joe Rogan has ever said throughout his entire career. And, you know, Bernie, you messed up here. Why would you tell his endorsement? That's not good. And um, it's hard for me to actually digest the fact that anybody is actually mad. In fact, I don't even think, I mean, maybe, maybe a grand total of like two out of the ten people who were talking about this were actually mad about it. But my guess is the overwhelming majority were not mad about it. Why? Because he's the number one podcaster in the world. So... When you have somebody who's the number one podcaster in the world casually say, like, yeah, I like the guy, and I'll probably vote for him, why wouldn't you highlight that? Because it's not just about him. It's also about the 
millions of people who watch him. And also, isn't the whole point to try to get people on the side of a left-wing ideology? Isn't that like the whole mission of the left? Isn't our goal to expand our coalition, get as many votes as possible, and therefore win so we could get our agenda implemented? Isn't that the whole idea? Well, no. Apparently, you're not supposed to highlight the endorsement of Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan has said things in the past that were either politically incorrect in some instances or wrong in other instances or just joking in other instances. They were highlighting a tweet where he said, like, uh, man, I really love it when uh, two gay guys kiss in public because, uh, you know, it's great that they're showing public displays of affection or something to that extent. Isn't that a positive pro-gay tweet? I just spit all over the place when I said the word tweet. But isn't that what that is? That's a pro-gay tweet. The other thing is uh, he's being called transphobic in a thousand different ways because one of his opinions uh, that he spoke about on the show is, hey, I don't think uh, somebody who went through puberty as a biological male and then transmission uh, – uh, transmissions, that's not how you uh, say it – and then um, gets the gender reassignment surgery and becomes female – I don't think that in combat sports that makes sense, particularly because you have a giant advantage going through puberty as a male. So if you switch to uh, combat sports and you fight, but you've become a female, you still have the advantages that you got as a male, whether it's you know the, the bigger frame, the quicker reaction time, so on and so forth. So now Rogan stresses endlessly that I think you should have the right to do whatever you want to do, and I think you have the right to be called whatever you want to be called. You want to be called a woman? I'll call you a woman. Um, you know, you want to change your name? Okay, I'll call you whatever your changed name is. I think you have every right in the world to be trans. He said this a million times, but the fact that he says, hey, there's a conversation here to be had about biological men who after puberty become women, and then they want to fight other biological women who've been women their entire lives, that, that might be an issue. And, you know, it's dangerous for the biological woman. He said that immediately, everybody shut your brain off, immediately call it transphobic, and, you know, just summarize that entire conversation and that debate by just saying he's one word, transphobic. Um, and they, they take other things that he said in the past on a variety of issues. There were people... Like, I'm not kidding, going through old Joe Rogan comedy specials from the 1990s trying to pull quotes and be like, ah, ha, he said this. Think about how sad that is. He's a comedian, comedian, podcaster, uh, UFC commentator. And they're going back through stuff from the 1990s. Another one they pulled up is Rogan talking shit with one of his comedian buddies, I think it was. Um, or no, it was, uh, I think it was his buddy, Eddie Bravo, where they're messing around and they're t talking about like, uh, oh, <laughs> imagine uh, Hillary Clinton, like blowing a room of people. Would you even want a blowjob from Hillary? <laughs> now, is that a crass topic? Yes. They know it's a crass topic. Um, is it something to be outraged over? No, it's called talking shit. Are you kidding me? Every single person out there. Who's, who's bitching about this, if, if you go through their text messages, I guarantee you they've said things that are equally as obnoxious and preposterous and over-the-top and ridiculous and crass. You want to know why? Because we're human beings.
And the thing about Joe Rogan is he will say in public in front of millions of people the exact same thing that he will say behind closed doors in private with people. You want to know how I know? Because I've been on his show three times, and I know the guy. And whatever he says publicly, he'll, t- he'll say often. The conversations are exactly the same. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact maybe that's why he's got the number one podcast in the world? Maybe that's why he's monumentally popular? And that's the thing about all the fake outrage from mainstream media is like these, these are all people who have public and private positions. So they put on their public face when I'm very serious. And here I wrote an article. Here I did some angry tweets. Uh, see me? Am I virtue signaling enough for you? This is, this is what they do. They have the public face, and then they have the private face, and they are totally different, and they're okay with that. They think that that makes them more civil. That they, they think that makes them, we believe in decorum, but they also think it makes them more moral and ethical, and that's the main point. So when they go after him for saying naughty things, they think like, aha, I'm going to wag my finger at you because you're not – I'm moral and you're not moral. I'm ethical and you're not ethical. See, you've said very rude, rude things in person in, in front of millions of people. I can't believe you said those things. This is their mindset. Little do they, do they understand that every, almost everybody realizes at this point, oh, so you're getting mad at him because he's authentic. And he says the same thing in public as he would say privately. So that's the operative thing about Joe. Is he just talking shit? Why is everybody pretending like talking shit doesn't exist? Why are we all pretending like that's not a thing? Everything you've ever said has to be like, I, this is a very button-down thesis of exactly what I believe. And I believe. Yay. No, sometimes you talk shit. Sometimes you say whatever the fuck comes to your mind. Sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes it's offensive. But when you have those conversations with your friends, nobody ever pulls a red car on you and is like, how dare you say that? I can't believe Nobody ever says that because they're your friends and you're fucking around. He just has those conversations publicly. Now, by the way, does that mean I agree with Joe Rogan? No. When I was on his show the first time, I actually kind of debated him a little bit on the trans issue. So, you know, you're allowed to disagree with him. You're allowed to point out those disagreements. You're allowed to have conversations about those disagreements. Nobody would want that more than Joe Rogan himself. He loves sitting across from somebody who disagrees with him and sparring with him. Or, hey, I think this. What do you think? Oh, you think that? Interesting. Wonderful. Let's talk about it. Again, why his show is so popular. But that's not what these people are doing. They're virtue signaling, and they're woke scolding, and they're pretending like, I'm better than you, because you've said naughty things that are bad, bad things, bad. And it's not working anymore. This, this shitty, politically correct, over-the-top, fake outrage isn't working anymore. You want to know why? Because the same people who were totally cool with and touting the endorsement of Henry Kissinger of Hillary Clinton, they thought that was a good thing, are now like, I can't believe Bernie accepted an endorsement from the number one podcaster in America. Joe Rogan never committed war crimes. Henry Kissinger did commit war crimes. You have Michelle Obama, who just recently said that her and George W. Bush have the same values. Well, he's also a war criminal. He did torture. He did illegal wars. He's got minimum 200,000 dead Iraqi civilians' blood on his hands. And you're going to tell me you have the exact same, you know, The exact same values as George W. Bush? Well, that's pretty damning, isn't it? But the thing is, mainstream media thinks that's wonderful. Nah, yes, if I'm a president, he's within the realm of respectable discourse. Except he's a war criminal, and if we actually applied the Nuremberg uh, laws, he'd be hanged. 
You got Ellen hanging out with George W. Bush, joking around, watching the game together. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Yeah, this is fun. That's totally fine and acceptable. By the way, it's not. I'm actually against that. But it's not okay to tout the endorsement of a comedian who says controversial things. Piss right off with that. Because every single person. And, and fi- final point I'll make is this. Guys, if Elizabeth Warren, I know this for a fact. He said it publicly, but actually Joe told me this privately before he said it publicly. Elizabeth Warren, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, he said, quote, every one of them, every one of the presidential candidates wanted to get on his show and contacted him. You know what he said? Not interested. You want to know why? Because he knows, oh, they're just bullshitters. They'll say whatever they think I want to hear or my audience wants to hear to my face on the podcast. They're putting on, again, public position, private position. He knows all these other people, oh, they have public positions and private positions. So everything is coached. Everything is overly thought out. This is the giant problem Elizabeth Warren ran into is that she stopped even trying to be populist and trying to be like Bernie, and she started overthinking and over-strategizing, accusing him of sexism. She was just asked, uh, oh, is Hillary right when she says that uh, nobody likes Bernie? And Elizabeth Warren totally dodged. I'm not going to get into that. You can't even say about your friend, I like him, and I count. You can't even say that? Overly coached. Public physicians, private physicians. All of them know that. Joe Rogan knows that all these people would just say to his face whatever the hell they have planned out. He knew that when he spoke to Yang, when he spoke to Tulsi, and when he spoke to Bernie, He's just talking to somebody who he finds interesting, and he knows that they're going to tell him the truth. Every single one of these people who are fake morally grandstanding over the Joe Rogan endorsement, they would drink battery acid to have Joe Rogan utter a single positive sentence about them. That goes for Warren, that goes for Biden, that goes for Mayor Pete. And all their supporters, too. They would be touting you. Yes, the number one podcaster in America. Yes, loves our candidate. Yes. They would use it. They wouldn't even talk about controversial stuff. But if they did, they would talk about it in the context of see how much he's grown and see how much he's come around to the proper position. That's how they would talk about it. But since it's Bernie, they literally tried to get Bernie to disavow the endorsement. By the way, Bernie didn't endorse Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan semi-endorsed Bernie. So let's understand that there's a difference there. Bernie compromised none of his values at all. He's arguing for the same thing he was arguing for the day before, the week before, the year before, 20 years ago. Bernie didn't endorse Rogan. Rogan endorsed Bernie. So what, what do you want him to do? I disavow the support of the most popular podcaster in America, and by extension, his 15 million fans can piss right off forever. That's actually what they want, though. They wanted Bernie to do that because they know it's just a political trick on their, on their part. It's a ploy. Oh, disavow, 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 so that it'll hurt you in the polls. God, you're doing so well, and we don't know how to stop you. This is bad. Disavow. Well, thankfully, and I do mean thankfully, because the Bernie campaign has folded in the past with Jank Uger and in other instances as well. Thankfully. They finally showed a little spine. They finally showed a little spine, and they basically said, no, uh, we're trying to grow our campaign. We're trying to welcome people in 
who uh, perhaps previously wouldn't have been in the camp. And uh, we think it's wonderful when people endorse left-wing ideas, and we're just as committed as we've ever been to trans rights and everything else. People were saying, oh, this proves Bernie's not serious about trans rights. He made, in the 80s, he made Burlington, Vermont a, quote, trans mecca because he's so pro-trans rights and equality. So all your fake virtue signaling comes to naught because we know, at the end of the day, on policy, which is all that matters, Bernie's going to fight for the correct position. So I think this was 100% the right thing. I think you absolutely had to double down. They did double down. And I'm happy about that, man. I'm really happy about that. Because it shows a mindset that, oh, if you guys keep doing this, you could win. And by the way, there's a lot of really good polls that just came out for Bernie recently. Very good polls. In Iowa, in New Hampshire, national polls, a lot of really good polls. But, 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 I'm going to say pretend like he's still 10 points down and work your butt off because we can't get overconfident. That's our enemy. Overconfidence is absolutely our enemy. So anyway, the Joe Rogan non-controversy controversy apparently was a thing, but it was a very fake thing. I'm sorry, guys, but there's got to be there's got to be a statute of limitations on outrage. There has to be. There has to be. And also, we got to stop with the, like, you want to get outraged? Sometimes I'm pro-outrage, but I'm always pro-outrage at things that politicians actually do. So in other words, it's more about your, ac- your actions. It's not about what you say. It's not about, the, oh, my God, you said something. You made a controversial joke in... 2008. How could you? That's so stupid and that's so unserious. When we have all these problems to fix, we're, you know, bombing eight different countries, 78% of the countries living paycheck to paycheck, 7 million people just lost their uh, health insurance, 45,000 die every year because they don't have basic health care. The list goes on and on of all these problems. And you're, you know, you're angry about like podcast comments from the early 2010s or some shit. I mean, come on. So you can be outraged, but be outraged at things politicians do. Be outraged at the state of affairs in terms of homelessness, all serious issues. I can't take you seriously if you're all, naughty comments, bad. Okay, what are you for? Who gives a fuck? Move on. So, uh, yeah, anyway, this was a non-controversy controversy, but there was a good outcome, and I'm happy about it. Okay, next. Some secret audio of Donald Trump talking to Lev Parnas was uh, released. And he says something here, Trump does, that really proves the point we've been making about Bernie all along. Working for, and not like her job. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I think a third part about it, Vice President. 
because all those people that hated her so much who voted for me, you know, I get 20% of voting well people who are all this because of trade, because he's a big treasure and he basically says we're getting screwed in trade. And he's right. And I'm worse than he is. But you know, we could do something about it. I don't know if he could have. But, uh, if she picked Bernie Sanders, it would have been tougher. But the only one I didn't want her to pick. Now, then you. He's the only one I didn't want her to pick for VP, Bernie Sanders. And he said, I'm worse than him talking about trade. He knows. (laughs) Listen, he knows. For all of Donald Trump's flaws, and he's got a zillion of them, and we talk about them all day, every day. He knows how to read a room. He knows how to sense the mood in the room, and he knows what direction to go in, depending on who he's talking to. Who am I talking to? Am I talking to a bunch of elites from Goldman Sachs? I'll say this. Oh, am I at one of my rallies and you know, whatever? It's in New Mexico. Uh, I'll talk about the wall and talk about uh, how bad immigrants are. He knows his crowd. He knows what sells and what doesn't. One of the things he knows sells that other Republicans don't get is his position on trade, fight the outsourcing, keep the jobs here. He used to argue for not cutting Social Security and and Medicare. Now he argues for cutting them. But he knew, oh, I'm in front of a, I'm trying to win an election here in the United States of America, running for president. I'm in the swing states. I'm not going to, I'm going to say I'm never cutting Social Security. Are you kidding me? I'm going to say I'm going to keep the jobs here. He knows. And he knows that the stuff Bernie Sanders talks about is popular. There was another article in the Daily Beast, I forget how long ago it came out now, but we covered it on this show. Trump said one of the one of the issues that scares him the most for Bernie is debt relief. And and honestly, a lot of that comes from Trump's own personal experience. His be- businesses have been through bankruptcy six or seven times. And to him, the idea of debt relief is like, oh my God, that's super appealing. And he knows that other people feel the same way. And so Trump has said privately, but socialism is not going to be so easy to beat if they're running a socialist, because there's something inherently appealing about canceling student loan debt, medical debt. And this is something Tucker Carlson also said on his show the other day, specifically brought up the issue of, I believe it was was debt relief, I believe it was student loan debt relief, specifically brought that up. And he said, listen, the person who, here's who's going to win the election, the person who promises to fix uh, people's lives to help them with their problems. On some level, he gets it. Guys, if it is Bernie versus Trump, expect a whole bunch of weirdness. Because Donald Trump might, uh, everybody surrounding Donald Trump is going to tell him the same thing. Uh, Hit Bernie, uh, how do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? How do you pay for it? You're going to be like Venezuela. You want to make us like Venezuela. Socialism, 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 be afraid. Since everybody's going to be telling Trump that, there's a chance he takes the bait, and that's how he goes after Bernie. If he goes after Bernie that way, hear me now, quote me later, he will not win. Donald Trump will lose. He will not win. That strategy is a sure loser. But hearing this audio leads me to believe he might have some tricks up his sleeve. So in other words, could you imagine an election where Bernie Sanders is running all the issues he always runs on? And then Trump attempts to outflank Bernie on his left on many issues in the debates. Because it looks like 
Trump is crafty enough and clever enough to know, oh my God, thank God Hillary didn't pick Bernie because then I could have lost. He's smart enough to know that, which means he's smart enough to know in a one-on-one with Bernie, he's got to get creative because his normal stuff won't work. So if he really, if he can stand firm against every right-wing advisor he has, and he decides, okay, if I'm running against Bernie, watch, I'm going to pivot to the left of him on many issues. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if you see a whole bunch of, like, if it's Trump versus Bernie, last-minute things from Trump, which allow him, give him something where he could try to argue from the left of Bernie on some issues. And if he were to do that, man, this dude is, uh, you know, He's dumb in a zillion different ways, but this would be a genius political maneuver. So anyway, I think that clip is really important. It tells, you know, a story that all of us felt on some level. Hashtag Bernie would have won. Seems like Trump is almost at that point. If Hillary ran with Bernie, man, that would have been tougher because he's even better than me on trade or I'm worse than him on trade. Wow. That's something else. Okay. All right, I'm gonna take um, I'm gonna take a break. When we come back, I got a new ad from Matt Orfalo that you're gonna want to hear, and uh, much much more. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
All right, I'm back, y'all. I keep thinking about Kobe. I mean, how good can you get? You'll never know how good you can be at something until you you dive headfirst into that thing like you're Kobe. Like, you could be so good at whatever it is you want to be good at if you just dive into the issue like Kobe. It, it's like that's what it means to be 100% committed to something. Okay, so um, let's talk about this new Bernie Sanders ad. There's a new Bernie Sanders fan-made ad that was just released. Um, It's from the same creator of the last very, very viral Bernie ad that, you know, we shared and many others shared, and it got millions and millions and millions of views. Well, now there's another one out. Um, This is from Matt Orpola. Matt, I apologize if that's not how you pronounce your name. I believe I've... I believe I've been corrected on it once or twice, and now it's still. I have no idea if it's stuck. You know how I am when it's like Tom Steyer-Steyer. And when they had the World Economic Forum at uh, Davos, Davos, (laughs) Davos. (laughs) So I'm just bad with names like that. But anyway, um, here's the ad. I believe it's titled MLK and Bernie versus Trump. Watch. One of the great leaders in American history, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I quote, call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all of God's children. The poor black and white are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. There is something immoral about three families in America owning more wealth than the bottom half of America. Yes, the hour is dark. Evil comes forth in the guise of good. It is a time of double talk. But I'm not advocating guns and lessons, although in some cases teachers should have guns and lessons. Men in high places have a high blood pressure of deceptive rhetoric. Alternative facts. We crowd against welfare handouts to the poor. The Trump administration is scaling back social safety net programs. But generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Dakota Access Pipeline. Not only that, millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year. The Trump administration has authorized $16 billion this year alone to agribusiness. Millions, yes, billions are appropriated for mass murder. Donald Trump today called for more and more military spending. Senate passed a $674 billion military spending bill. Every single Democratic senator supported the bill. Every Democratic senator supported the bill. One independent senator, Bernie Sanders, opposed it. 
American people say, I can't afford to send my kids to college, I can't afford childcare, I can't afford housing, we need help there. Oh, but nobody listens to that. We don't have lobbyists here fighting for working families so they can find affordable housing or affordable prescription drugs. Now, Donald Trump has told literally thousands of lies, but the biggest lie was that he was going to stand up for working families. What they truly advocate is socialism for the rich. 83% of the benefits of his tax bill go to the 1%. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. Jimmy Dore also pointed this out. 
in order for Bernie to win, he needs to overwin because we don't want to go into the second ballot. We don't want to go into the second ballot where the DNC could try to screw him yet again. So we have to crush the competition. Honestly, we have to do within the Democratic primary what Trump did in the Republican primary, where his win was so overwhelming that even though they wanted to cheat him, they couldn't. That's what we have to do. And uh, if you needed more of a reason to get out there and fight, I think this ad provides it. It really does show you. Now, this is politically incorrect to say. It is. A lot of people get mad at you. And they'll get mad at you particularly because, you know, Bernie Sanders is an old white guy, although he's also Jewish. But for some reason, they just dock him his minority points and act like that doesn't count. Um, He's an old white guy. And uh, he happens to be the candidate that more closely aligns with Dr. King's philosophy than anybody else. It's the truth. Don't take my word for it. Take Nina Turner's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Take Killer Mike's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Take, uh, you know, let the policies do the talking. And it just so happens that all these policies that uh, Bernie Sanders is fighting for happen to be the same policies that Dr. King was fighting for in the People's Campaign. So this is all so important. And that ad really crystallizes uh, the, the fight that we're in. And by the way, even if Bernie gets elected, the work's not done. Bernie's going to call on you to hit the streets because we're never going to get Medicare for all or free college without going out there and making the politicians give it to us because he's going to hit a wall of opposition, not just in the Republican Party, which is a given, but at least half the Democratic Party. So it's going to be on us to say, no, 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 we're with this guy. We're with this guy. So anyway, I think that's super important. Um, great ad, Matt, you're the man, and everybody, uh, do us a favor, do him a favor, share this far and wide, because it doesn't get much better than this. Okay, next. Tucker Carlson did a segment here on impeachment. Uh, It's an interesting video because I think there are, I've noticed I have Martin Luther King over my shoulder while talking about Tucker Carlson, which is basically unacceptable. (laughs) That is not okay. Um, But anyway, this video on impeachment is interesting because there's a lot of spots where he's correct, but then there's also like plenty of blind spots that he has. So, but Funny enough, his commentary is actually much better than, like, MSNBC commentary on this same issue. So let's watch, and then we'll discuss. Good evening, and welcome to Tucker Carlson. There he is. He's still talking. been going on a long time. This week's impeachment trial in the Senate has done what you would have thought would be impossible in the era of Donald Trump. It has made politics boring again. The trial isn't just dull, it's dull in a highly aggressive, almost coercive way. Watching it is like being trapped by your drunk brother-in-law at Thanksgiving as he explains in forensic detail how he's managing his 401k. After about six minutes, you start fantasizing about jumping out the window. That's the experience of it. Unfortunately, there are no windows in the Senate chamber, so we've had to watch the entire thing. 
After four days of this, we have reached a conclusion. This isn't really about a phone call that Donald Trump once made to Ukraine. It's not even about Adam Schiff's now obvious dream of winning a daytime Emmy, talented thespian though he is. It's actually, underneath it all, a policy disagreement. Permanent Washington was enraged that Trump violated neocon orthodoxy by criticizing Middle Eastern wars and by promising to de-escalate tensions with Russia. Nothing he has done before or since has made them angrier than that did. It was a direct threat to their ideas and to their paycheck. So they decided to make sure he could never make good on those promises. Adam Schiff conceded as much in his closing comments today. Trump's real sin, Schiff explained, was questioning military aid to Ukraine. Why? Because it is America's duty to remain on the brink of war with Russia forever and indefinitely. The United States has roughly 68,000 troops stationed in Europe. They serve alongside troops from 28 other countries that comprise the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. They are holding the line against further Russian aggression. Now, the press, as you may have noticed, isn't in the habit of asking Adam Schiff to explain himself, and that's a shame in this case, because it would be nice to hear him explain what the hell he's talking about. In fact, the European Union has almost four times as many people as Russia does. Its economy is more than ten times as large. Russian troops haven't made it to Western Europe in 75 years, and they won't be coming anytime soon. They can't. And by the way, if the Europeans were worried about a Russian invasion, they'd build an army to protect themselves. They haven't done that because they're not worried. And yet, according to Adam Schiff, America must, must keep 70,000 troops in Europe away from their families to guard against the ever-present threat of Russian invasion. For real. He said that. His fellow Democrats nodded in vacant-eyed agreement. If it weren't for American military aid to Ukraine, Schiff went on, Putin's armies might have conquered that country, gone on to seize Poland, and overrun the continent. You'd have to learn Russian to spend junior year in Florence. Watch. Now, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a threat to the peace and security of Europe. If we had not supported Ukraine in 2014, if members of this body had not voted overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis for military assistance to rebuild Ukraine's military, there is no question it would have invited further Russian adventurism in Ukraine and perhaps elsewhere in the heart of Europe. It would have weakened our allies and exposed U.S. troops stationed in Europe to greater danger. And believe it or not, Schiff went on like this all day long. Voice rising, eyes bulging, and over time he began to sound less like a congressman from Burbank and more like a character from a Tom Clancy novel. The greatest threat to America, Schiff said, isn't Russia's first guards tank army. It's the President of the United States, who quite possibly could be the first non-voting member of the Politburo. In other words, gentlemen, the penetration has been complete. If a president can be so easily manipulated to disbelieve his own intelligence agencies, to accept the propaganda of the Kremlin, yep. that is a threat to our national security. Now, by now you may be wondering, how exactly is this the impeachment we were promised? Was this supposed to be about the abuse of power and the contempt of Congress? Aren't those the charges? How do we get to the part where Russia invades Belgium? Well, actually, it's been a long time coming. The genesis of Donald Trump's impeachment trial, it turns out, wasn't the now famous Ukrainian phone call or even his victory three years ago. It actually began on February 13, 2016, on that day. That's the day.
the Trump debate at Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, and the rest of the GOP primary field in South Carolina, Columbia, I think. Trump said things that, until then, no major Republican candidate had been willing to say out loud. He called the Iraq War, for example, quote, a big fat mistake. He said America ought to reach an agreement with Russia rather than fighting proxy wars against them. He called the trillions of dollars we spent in the Middle East a waste. At the time, it seemed like Trump was attacking Republican orthodoxy, but now it's clear, and this impeachment makes it crystal clear what was really going on. Trump was attacking the consensus of both parties in Washington, and that's a neoconservative consensus. Both parties worked together to keep America overextended abroad, stuck in quagmires across the world that enriched defense contractors and lobbyists while killing our finest young men and hollowing out this country. Donald Trump promised a different path as a candidate. He said it was time for American troops and American dollars to protect American interests, not the interests of some backward Arab petrostate or corrupt Eastern European oligarchies. Against United Opposition in Washington, you'll remember, Trump got the nomination and then won. But Washington still has not recovered from the shock. And rather than learn from the results, they doubled down. They blamed the defeat on Russian Facebook ads that nobody saw. And in response to those ads that nobody saw, they're demanding that America risk war with the world's largest nuclear power. Now, we've mocked Adam Schiff many times in this show, and we hope to in the future. But on this matter, we're deadly serious. If this guy's public statements reflect what he actually believes, he is dangerous to the country, for real. A lot of that was right. There's plenty of it that's wrong, too, and we'll get to that. But on on Adam Schiff, I mean, he's correct. Adam Schiff quite literally said in this impeachment, you know, we have to give Ukraine weapons because they're fighting Russia over there so we don't have to fight them over here. And he went on and on about Russia. And it became clear that in Adam Schiff's mind, he, does not, he doesn't think of impeachment as what the actual articles said. Uh, you know, one of them being he abused his authority and, like, tried to get an investigation into the Bidens by holding aid over Ukraine's head. But he doesn't look at it as just that. He looks at it as a much broader issue, a Russiagate issue, a Mueller report issue, and he sees it as, like, Trump being subservient to Vladimir Putin, which is absolutely preposterous. So for all of his, like, melodramatic – I think Tucker's right when he says he acts like he's in a Tom Clancy novel. For all of this melodramatic nonsense, really at the heart of his argument is a Cold War mentality and a mentality of, you know, the, the globe is a giant chessboard and it's us versus Russia and everything needs to fit into that paradigm. And I think he's wrong, and I think he's dangerously wrong. And you guys know I've been very critical of Russiagate from the beginning. And this was one of the biggest Russiagate Kool-Aid drinkers. And he, he hasn't been able to let it go that, you know, the Mueller report didn't turn out as he wanted it to turn out. And so he's linking in the Mueller report to an impeachment that's nominally over a different question. So I think Tucker's right to criticize this. I really do. And by the way, it is easy to turn people off to impeachment with this jackass as the face of it. And I'm not just saying that. Guys, what do I tell you? After impeachment passed the House and Nancy Pelosi was sitting on the articles, what did I say? I said, good, sit on them permanently. Why? Because the polls went up after Trump was impeached in the House. The polls went up. 55% of the country supported impeaching Trump after it passed the House. 55%. I told you, when it gets to the Senate, 
Trump is going to win. He's going to be acquitted. And then the polls are going to swing hard in the other direction. And guess what? The polls are already moving in the other direction. It went from 55% supporting impeachment to 50% supporting impeachment. Why? Because it's these morons, like Adam Schiff making the argument. He's right when he says, oh, my God, it's, it's, you know, impeachment is also boring. It is. The only people who are closely following impeachment are people who closely followed the Mueller report and were plugged into politics all the time and only care about politics for this, like, Tom Clancy, you know, angle of politics. These are not people who follow politics because they care about Medicare for All or free college or a living wage or improving lives or ending wars. These are people who are like MSNBC junkies. These are the only people in the country who are following every single twist and turn of the impeachment trial. And they're like, that's it. We finally got him. Yeah, I heard you the first freaking thousand times you said you got Trump and every time you didn't get him. So stop wasting my time. This is like watching a, a show that's a shitty TV show and you already know the ending. That's what this is. That's what impeachment is. So, um... That stuff, I, I tend to agree with Tucker. Now, where's he wrong? He's wrong on a number of fronts. So he says, oh, this comes down to a policy disagreement because, you know, Trump dared to buck the neocon orthodoxy. But here's the problem with that, Tucker. Trump only bucked the neocon orthodoxy in rhetoric. He never bucked the neocon orthodoxy when it comes to policy. In fact, when it comes to policy, he's gone almost 100% along with everything they want. And the only, with the one exception being North Korea, everywhere else he's given, the, he's given the neocons exactly what they want. From the arming of Ukraine, which Obama rightly opposed, Trump armed them, um, increasing sanctions on Russia, uh, not approving a, a Russian uh, pipeline. He's increased in Iraq, bombed Syria, like if, the maximum pressure on Venezuela, like all of this stuff is what John Bolton wants. So to say like, oh, the reason Schiff hates him is because Schiff is just a neocon and like, you know, Trump is bucking the neocon orthodoxy. He only did that in rhetoric alone. So that's really not um, why they did it. Now, another problem is Trump actually did do the thing that one of the articles of impeachment claimed he did. So what do you do in a situation where it is it's actually true that Trump abused his power and tried to force an investigation into the Bidens and held aid over Ukraine's head to deliver on that. What do you do when he actually abused his power? And that's what he did. Now, I'm against the aid to Ukraine in the first place. Like, I'm not for that. Um, but a president should not be able to just hold over a foreign country, you know, conditions to receive aid that was already allotted to them by Congress you know, that is an abuse of power. So I think he's guilty of that. And what Tucker's doing here is, even though he's right in criticizing Adam Schiff, he's obfuscating a little bit because he's not talking about the actual substance of the article of impeachment as it was written. All this extra stuff that Schiff is bringing in is wrong and terrible, the, the Russiagate stuff, nonsense. But the article of impeachment is very clearly about the Ukraine issue and the phone call. So... Now, I think there are better things to impeach him for. I, impeachment was a mistake, period. But if you're going to impeach, there are way better things to impeach for. Genocide in Yemen, emoluments, so on and so forth. But, like, he did do the thing that was one of the articles. He did. And Tucker uh, totally dodges that conversation. Um, and then, finally, the most important point is... Fuck, now I'm blanking on it. What was it? What was the most important point? 
What was the most important point? Oh, okay, I got it. My theory of uh, of impeachment. This really is the Democrats resisting without resisting. So Tucker's theory of impeachment is actually this is all they're doing this all because of like policy disagreements with Trump. But as I already explained to you, he's act, he actually doesn't disagree with the neocon consensus. He agrees with it. And he's doing all the policies of the establishment, almost across the board. Maybe every now and then, like 95% of the time, he does exactly what the establishment wants. 5% of the time, he doesn't. But like, and Adam Schiff is part of that establishment as well. So you have two establishment figures who nominally on paper actually agree on a decent amount. So why is Adam Schiff and why are the Democrats impeaching Trump? And again, it comes down to my theory is they're resisting without resisting. So they don't want to like really substantively go against his agenda. So what do they do? They're like, okay, let's casually sit by as his agenda gets through. Let's even support, for example, the increased NSA spying. A lot of Democrats voted for him to get that increased NSA spying. The, the gigantic military budget, so many Democrats voted for the gigantic military budget. The deregulation, there were famously votes across the aisle for the further Wall Street deregulation. So all these issues, the Democrats agree with Trump and help Trump pass his agenda. But they want to make it look like for the election, no, 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 no. I have, I'm actually totally against him, and I'll prove it because, see, I'm pro-impeachment, and I'm going a grandstand when it comes to impeachment. So actually, in a weird way, Tucker gets it exactly backwards because he says, oh, the impeachment's happening because Trump bucked neocon orthodoxy, and these are neocons coming after him. No, no. The reason impeachment is, is happening is because the Democrats need to do something to show their own voters, see, I'm strong, I'm fighting Trump. And this is the only way where they could do it, where they have that nominal argument. See, I'm anti-Trump while they actually support his agenda. So, you know, that's my theory on impeachment. I think the evidence is much more in line with my theory on impeachment. I agree with many of his criticisms of uh, Adam Schiff, but in his story, it makes it too much of Trump is a hero and the big bad establishment is against him. No, I think that... um, Russiagate was dead wrong. Russiagate, uh, Adam Schiff is totally deranged. And, you know, Trump's rhetoric on some of that stuff was better than his policies and his actions. But at the end of the day, his policies and actions match the establishment. So a guy's doing the bidding of the establishment. So the reason why the Democrats are going after him because they want to win the election and they need to show their voters something about, see, we're resisting and we're fighting him even though we agree with him on so many things. So I think that's what it boils down to. And again, I think there's more evidence for my theory than there is for him, because in in his theory, Trump really is, you know, the hero of the story, bravely standing up against all these uh, nefarious forces coming at him. And that's a little too convenient a theory, isn't it, Tucker? Okay. Next.
Here's a story that uh, is not getting too much play in U.S. media, even though it's monumentally important. Hundreds of thousands of protesters marched in Iraq to demand American troops leave the country. So I have a video here from the BBC. This is so you get a, you know, a better sense of exactly what the protests look like. Watch. So there was also a rocket attack on the U.S. Embassy yesterday, and uh, nobody was hurt, thankfully, and the rockets were pretty ineffectual, but there is a, there's a clear effort to get the U.S. out of Iraq completely, and obviously, you know, this recent iteration of this goes back to the General Soleimani assassination. You had... Um, Donald Trump decided to assassinate with a drone uh, General Soleimani, as well as the head of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the Iraqi forces, who were also fighting ISIS along with General Soleimani. And um, you have somebody who was in many ways a hero in the region, a hero to Iranians, and then also a hero to many Shia in Iraq who were, you know, there was an existential threat to their existence. There was ISIS trying to genocide them. So you have these heroes who were killed in this attack. And, um, I mean, it was an insane violation of international law. Uh, It's obviously an act of war against Iran. It also violated the territorial sovereignty of Iraq because it happened while in Iraq. And what happened is the Iraqi parliament took a vote and... I believe it was unanimous or near unanimous, they said, yes, we want the United States out now. I mean, we've been there since 2003. So I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, we should get out. And we should have gotten out years ago. Same with uh, Afghanistan. We've been there since 2001. There's so many people alive today who, you know, have never known the U.S. in a state of peace or even relative peace. So this is, um, you know, a stark reminder of what's going on in the world. And if you think that we're, you know, some sort of benevolent, altruistic world police force, I got a bridge to sell you. Because really, we're the international thug. That's what we are. And unfortunately, a lot of these conflicts have nothing to do with protecting people. It really has to do with, in the case of Iraq, it did have a lot to do with the oil, had a lot to do with the military-industrial complex and the profits. In the case of Afghanistan, it has a lot to do with the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth that are in that country. And also, in our mind, this has a lot to do with uh, Russia and the Cold War and having what we view as a geopolitical advantage in global politics, where we control more territory that are in uh, vital regions of the world. And in the case of Iraq, it's kind of amazing that sovereign country tells us, get out, 
And Trump, who campaigned on getting out, goes, no, now I'm going to stay indefinitely. We got at least 5,000 troops there. So now 5,000 troops there, or more, probably more that we don't even know about. And there are now rocket attacks on the embassy there. There was also, after the Soleimani killing, there was the bombing of uh, a base where it was originally reported nobody was hurt, but apparently many Americans were there and they had concussions. So get out. Get out. What are we, this isn't like, it's not a thing. This isn't an option. We're already there illegally. And then now you have a sovereign country telling us to get out. And by the way, where the hell's the media on this? I'm serious, man. This is the BBC I just showed you, but most U.S. outlets aren't reporting anything at all. They're not reporting this. They're not reporting it. So it really goes to show you in many ways, U.S. media is state media. Now, there are two wings of our state. So there's, uh, as Chomsky says, both we have two wings of the same party, the business party. That's Republicans and Democrats. But also, there are just two wings of our government. You know, you have the right-leaning press and the left-leaning press, but it's within a very rigidly defined spectrum. It's within the confines of an Overton window that's shifted way right and pro-corporate. And uh, that's why, yes, even though the press goes after Trump, goes hard in the paint after Trump, who are those people usually supporting? The Democratic Party and the deep state, the Democratic Party and our intelligence agencies, that's the furthest left you get on the spectrum here. So what's interesting is the Republicans, the elected Republicans, the Republican establishment agrees, let's stay in Iraq and Afghanistan forever. But also the Democratic establishment and the deep state, the intelligence agencies agree, let's stay in Iraq and Afghanistan forever. So now you notice, hold on. The media is not really talking about this, and anybody who mentions it, it's just a passing mention. It's like they're trying to hide the fact from us that we're there illegally in these wars, and now tensions are even higher, and they are literally trying to kick us out, hundreds of thousands of people marching to kick us out, rockets hitting, you know, the, the green zone, rockets hitting the U.S. Embassy, and what do you, what do you hear? Something happening? Is, is there something happening about the thing with the, now see what had happened was with the Suleimani thing, we were, we did the right thing and now we're going to stay here and you could shut up and piss off and we're going to do whatever the hell we want and we're not even going to pretend to have a mission, we're not even going to pretend to have an end goal, we're not even going to pretend to define what victory is anymore and, 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 we'll add to the body counts while we're at it. Minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed as a result of the U.S. being there, that's a minimum. We did torture to cover it up trillions and trillions of dollars wasted and it's still going on and it's barely talked about. You have to come here to get this conversation. It's barely talked about. In a world that made sense, this would be huge news every single week. Huge news that, you know, oh my God, look at what's going on. Look, we're still wasting money over there. We're still wasting lives over there. Are still our brave men and women in uniform are risking their lives. Many of them have died, so on and so forth. All this would be huge news. Don't be they don't even talk about it. They don't even talk about it. So this is, this is where we're at now. Just ignore the fact that a sovereign nation kicked us out, and they have the right to do that. Ignore the fact that the president used to say, let's get out, and now he wants to keep us there and increase our troop levels. Ignore the hundreds of thousands of people marching for self-determination. And by the way, they want to throw out the Iraqi government, which was too kind to the U.S. all along. They think oh, they're all corrupt. And barely a peep here. So thank you to all the mainstream media outlets 
for being so terrible that people have to come to this shitty YouTube show to get anything even close to the truth. Okay, next. So there was a pretty hilarious moment at an Elizabeth Warren event. Um, there's a right-wing guy here who goes up to her to ask her a question. In reality, he's not asking a question. He's playing gotcha, which ironically is something that the, uh, you know, the right always accuses the left of doing. You guys do gotcha politics all the time. Well, this is exactly what that is. So uh, there will be no criticisms of him, though, because he's on their team, so it's okay when they do it. Um, but he is really triggered and really mad about the issue of uh, debt relief. So let's see what he says. It's a little hard to hear, but if you pay attention, you can kind of get uh, what he's saying here. And either way, I'll tell you when we come back what he said. Take a look. with his anger you're laughing at it and then he like walks out really angrily nothing like an angry walk where you could like see that they're angry as they walk i am mad one foot in front of the other here i go like oh bro you're oh you're tough you're really serious here aren't you (laughs) fucking relax bro relax 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 if only you know you showed one tenth that anger at, I don't know, our illegal wars. Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe he is angry at those two. But he had one moment with Elizabeth Warren, and this is what he chose to ask. By the way, Elizabeth Warren isn't even for eliminating all student loan debt. So you could take that anger and direct it at Bernard Sanders, where he actually will proceed to laugh in your face, unlike her, even though you accused her of laughing in your face. Um, Bernie will laugh at you for that, so please go bring that anger to Bernie so we could uh, laugh and then we'll all mock it. Uh, but I just, it's so silly. Like, you're such a silly person. You're going to do, like, a, like, fake anger thing and walk out? Like, how could you? How could you not agree with me on this? It's funny. The people who are right's always talking about marketplace of ideas, bro, open dialogue and discourse. And then what do they do in a situation like this? I'm just going to virtue signal and grandstand and be like, debt relief is bad, and I'm not even going to hear a counter opinion on this. I'm just going to angrily walk out. Well, congratulations on being a triggered little bitch. Congratulations, I mean a little snowflake. Wow, you're so precious. You can't even hear a counter-argument. Watch your angry walk. Here you go. So sad. So pathetic. Anyway, um, don't perceive this segment as defending Elizabeth Warren, because, again, she doesn't even freaking support <laughs> total uh, student loan debt relief like Bernie does. But here's what he said. My daughter is in school. I saved all my money just to pay student loans. Can I have my money back? 
And Elizabeth Warren says, of course not. <laughs> I do like that. I'm not going to lie. That is like, that is kind of straight to the point. She seems like taken aback, but she was like, no, you're, no, that's not happening. Then he says, so you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money. And those of us who did the right thing get screwed. And she's kind of like, whoa. And then he angrily walks out. So I need you to stop and really reflect on the logic that he's using there. Hey, you know, I saved my money to put my daughter through school to pay student loans. Can I have my money back? Now, now, if this daughter is like, let's say she's two years into school, and let's say this bill passes and becomes law, then those final two years, it would get paid for via taxes. And the amount of money you'd pay in taxes to get that back is obviously significantly less than what you're paying now. So this dude would, would save money in that scenario. So even if you view this from the narcissistic perspective of like, what about me? Okay, what about you? Just like with Medicare for All, you'll save money and get something that should have been off the table all along. If it's so outrageous, free college, then why not uh, argue against taking away free high school too? We already have that. We have free high school. We have free middle school. We have free elementary school. Free at the point of service, paid for via taxes. We already have that in the United States of America. Nobody, not even conservatives, are angry about that. Nobody's like, this is such an outrage. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Because we go, yeah, what do you mean? We have a civilized society here, so some things are off the table, and this is one of those things. Where's the debate? Why not, instead of thinking that way with K-12, to why not think that way with K-16? to Is it really that big of a difference? Turns out, yes, it actually is a big difference particularly because we got over $1.5 trillion in student loan debt and people are up to their debt and eyeballs and they can't even file for bankruptcy on that debt, so it screws them over in a thousand different ways. Why not get rid of that and do the right thing? But this guy's like, oh, yeah, what about, what, can I get my money back? I saved all my money to pay student loans. <laughs> Guys, by this logic that this dude is using, and my buddy Omar uh, Botter on Twitter pointed this out, Botter on Twitter, Kind of like a tongue twister. Uh, he was like, so are you against, like, medical b- breakthroughs? You know, I, when I was young, I got sick, and I just had to deal with it. And I was stronger as a result of it at the end of it. I, my immune system needed to get stronger. Today, they just want to give these kids medicine, and they don't even get sick. They don't even have to go through it. Can I go back in time and get unsick, please? If they're going to have cures today, then back when I was at Why did we also should have, should, you know, should have the cures. But since we don't, why, why have cures now? They should struggle like I struggled. That's the logic, man. That's the, by this dude's logic, you could support freaking the slave markets they have in Libya right now. Because think about it. If somebody is a slave, and let's say they, get, you know, they eventually get free, they could be like, well, I had to be a slave, and I, I got through that, and I worked hard. Could I have my slave years back? Why would you end it? Everybody should experience what I had to experience that was bad. That seems ridiculous, right? Because it is ridiculous. Why do you think it's any different for student loan debt, a, whole, a thing, a whole category of something that shouldn't even exist? That shouldn't even exist. Student loan debt shouldn't be a thing. Medical debt shouldn't be a thing. Now, if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. But you're going to have to come up with better freaking arguments than this bullshit. 
By this logic, you'd be against medical breakthroughs, you'd be against ending the slave markets in Libya, you'd be against any positive advancement because, hey, myself or some people in the past had to deal with the downsides of that thing, so everybody should have to deal with the downsides of that thing. Well, how about we don't improve anything ever? I'm very intelligent. No, you're a silly, you know, little snowflake bitch, and the fact that you, like, angrily walked out says a lot about you. You're not interested in the discussion. You're not interested in the dialogue. You're not. You're interested in stating the things that you already believe, shutting your mind off and grandstanding and acting like you nailed it. Well, I got bad, bad news for you. I actually believe in the open marketplace of ideas and discourse. And uh, when we actually hold your ideas up against other options, other ideas, you look kind of silly. Okay, next. I have to say, guys, I am simply amazed, amazed at how ineffectual the media continues to be at fighting back against Donald Trump. I think one of the reasons he won is that the media covered him so much and they always pressed that outraged and that offended button so often that it became the boy who cried wolf. And like when seven out of the 10 anti-Trump stories you cover are just about his tweets or how he said something that was uncivil, well, then when you get to the three out of 10 things that are genuinely terrible, they don't land as hard because all day, every day, Trump outrage breaks the outrage meter. And um, I, I think that what you're about to see here is such a clear example of this exact um, dynamic unfolding. So get ready to, to clutch your pearls, media people. Uh, and that's what they did here. They were clutching their pearls over this. This is a, a comment from Trump that made the media throw a tantrum. CBS News reports that GOP senators have been warned by Trump team, quote, vote against the president and your head will be on a pike. How is that acceptable? <laughs> I love how they think they have to add, like, the, the morality side of it. Like, if you don't know what you're supposed to think about this, let me help you out here. How is this acceptable? He said things very, very bad. Oh, you're so brave. You have such a strong moral compass. You're against murdering people and putting their heads on a pike? Wow. <laughs> and by the way, he's not being literal. I know this. You know this. But they pretend like, oh, this is a threat. I'm not kidding. They literally were pretending like this was a physical threat against elected officials. <laughs> what? It's, just, it's so ridiculous. So um, now I got news for the media and I got news for Trump but mostly the media here, he didn't need to issue any kind of warning or say anything at all. He's going to get acquitted. Doesn't matter what he said, what he did. There's a, everybody's losing their mind today because John Bolton said, oh, yes, indeed, Trump held the aid over Ukraine's head to investigate the Bidens. Of course, that's what he did. And everybody's like, ah, open and shut case, impeachment done. Except why are you all pretending? Why are you all agreeing to pretend with each other? Like, got him. 
No, there is no got him. He's going to get acquitted. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, I'm so annoyed by these people. So many, even people I like do this. Like, aha, bombshell. Yeah, I got it, bombshell. Like, the last one and the one two weeks before that and three weeks before that and two months before that. And when you fucking launched the Mueller report and were like, That's, we're going to get him or he's going to be taken out of the White House in handcuffs. <laughs> How'd that work out? Stop with the wishful thinking. You guys are all the king of wishful thinking, like that song. That's what you all are. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Get over it. Get over it. Stop with the, aha, it's not happening. So you need to get over 20 Republican senators to win in impeachment. Bitch, you're not even going to get, it would be a, mir- a miracle, an absolute miracle, if they got three. And they got to get over 20 Republican senators. It would be a miracle if they got three. A mir- you might even lose Democrats. There ain't no guarantee that Doug Jones and Joe Manchin are going to uh, be in, against, or excuse me, for impeachment. They could very easily be against impeachment. So, bruh, why are we wasting our time? Why are we wasting our time? Anyway, but here's the main point. You need to make this threat, but it's not actually a threat. This is, it, it's, if you go against the president, we will end your career in politics. That's the argument. That's what they're actually saying. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Vote against the president and your head will be on a pike. In other words, he ain't going to play fair with you. He's going to go after you. He's going to use his Twitter account. He's going to crucify you. You're going to be out of politics because this is a president, depending on what poll you look at, he has between an 80% and over a 90% approval rating with the Republican voters. So it's his party. It's his party. He's using that popularity. He's saying, I have political capital with debates. I'm going to use it. You better vote the right way on this. You better vote with me. Now, not only am I not outraged about that, I want a Democratic president to do the same thing, and I want a Democratic president to do it on Medicare for all, on free college, on a living wage, on ending the wars, on legalizing marijuana, on a Green New Deal, on freeing all the nonviolent drug offenders. I like... I love these tactics. Are you kidding me? I want them. I don't care if you get along in Washington, D.C. with everybody and you're back slapping and you're all in a smoke-filled back room, sipping a whiskey, hanging out at the country club. I don't care about any of that. I, in fact, I think if you like that environment, you're messed up. You got mad problems, son. So I don't want you to go there to make personal friends. I want you to go there to get stuff done for the American people. I want you to go there to fix everybody's life. So how do you do that? You play hardball. You have your friends, you have your allies, but you let them know, listen, I'm the boss in this bitch. I would love a President Bernie Sanders using these exact same tactics to get Medicare for all. Oh, oh, that's, oh, that's cute. You said you want to vote against Medicare for all. You're going to vote against my bill? You're going to vote against my bill. Now, I'm going to ask you just one time here. You sure you want to do that, fam? Are you sure? Just how sure are you? Because let me tell you something. Your election's coming up in two years. You know what's going to happen in that, right? I am going to support a primary challenger to your left. I will personally go and campaign there. And, oh, would you look at that? I just saw some new polls. My approval rating is 62% in the country because I was just elected, and your approval rating is already at 37%, way under 50. Who do you think is going to win that fight? Do you like your job? Do you like being here in Washington? Well, okay, then you better do the right thing. This one is not negotiable. This is how you play politics. This is what Obama should have done. 
when he caved all the way to doing Romney care, which is Obamacare, which is originally a right-wing idea, the individual mandate. He was, okay, I'll cave, 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 cave. Can I cave on top of my cave? He was just caving nonstop and giving them exactly what they wanted. I wish Obama said for single payer, at the very least a public option, like, no, I'm, call all the blue dogs in my office. We're going to have a cute little meeting here. I wish he didn't do it. So for Trump on impeachment, by the way, an issue where he's already going to win, he's just trying to hold the caucus, make them fall in line. Oh, you're going to vote against me? That's cute. Well, how about I come after you ruthlessly if you do that? That's called playing politics, you Pollyanna-ish media bitches. Just such Pollyanna bitches, man. Like, this is so stupid. This is like, oh my God, I can't believe there's gambling in Las Vegas. Fucking, that's the whole point. (laughs) That's the whole point. By the same token, this is exactly the point of politics. You want to win? Find a way to win. Sometimes, like, you know, the the great um, Lincoln movie showed this, they had to wheel and deal behind the scenes. Sometimes you got to wheel and deal behind the scenes. you got to do whatever it takes to win on issues that are important to you. And obviously, the issue that's most important to Donald Trump is Donald Trump's own ass. So he's pulling out all the stops to protect his ass. And guess what? It's going to work. It's going to work. We just need this kind of fight for Medicare for all. We just need this kind of fight for free college and ending the wars and so on and so forth. Like, that's what we need this for. So am I mad at this? Not at all. It's totally expected. And this is a tactic I wish the Democrats would use. And I'm so sick and tired of the fake outrage brigade, man. This is all they got. Guys, how many, you've watched this show for how long now? Many of you have been watching for years and years. I try my best that when, when I'm go, going against Trump, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm going against other politicians, I try to say, hey, here's exactly why I'm doing it. Here's where they're wrong on policy. And I try to make a substantive case. But, I mean, think about it. This is anything but substantive. This is just, they're literally pretending this may have been an actual threat on their lives. That's the the stage they're at now, where they're just living in fantasy land on purpose because it makes them feel good. Okay, well, then maybe the media profession isn't for you. Go find something else. All right, let's make fun of Cloud Boot Jar. This video went viral on Twitter. It's the perfect encapsulation of who Amy Klobuchar is. Um, I wish I could give credit to whoever originally edited this and sent it out there, but it was so it's over Twitter, all over Twitter, in so many different places. I don't know who made the initial video. Um, so anyway, without further ado, here's Amy Klobuchar being Amy Klobuchar. Sent out a tweet. He made fun of me for talking about climate change in the middle of a blizzard, and he called me. No woman. So I wrote back, hey, Donald Trump, the science is on my side, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. So I wrote back, hey, Donald Trump, the science is on my side, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. So I wrote back, Donald Trump, the science is on my side. 
And I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. Sometimes, if you haven't noticed, he is a little humor. Like when he called me Snow Woman at my announcement in the middle of that thing, I wrote back on Twitter, I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. So I wrote back, hey, Donald Trump. So I wrote back, uh, hey, Donald Trump. So I wrote back, I wrote back. I tweeted back, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. And he called me Snow Woman. So I wrote back, I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, bro, what? Oh, man, that's like, that really gives me the vibe of like, Almost like they created a character who's the person at the office that has zero personality, but they think they're the shit. And, like, if you're watching a sitcom and they walk in the room, or you walk in the room at one point, and they're at the end of telling a joke, and all you hear is, like, and so then I says to him, that's not a ferret. And you got the forced laughter from that. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> That's what that reminds me. Somebody with zero personality who thinks they're the shit. Like, it's okay. Embrace your, like, loserness. I, I, I actually have an affinity for people who are loserish, but, like, they embrace it. Because there's something so pure about that. It's almost like, yeah, you're, so, you're too pure for this world. Embracing your loser, loserish, loserishness, that's hard to say. Because um, on some level, I feel the exact same way. Like, I feel oftentimes I'm an outcast, I'm an outsider, and it's like, just I accept that role and embrace that role. It's no big deal. It is what it is. But when you're, <laughs> when you're a loser and you try to pretend like you're like, I'm the coolest, bro. Let me tell you this awesome story that you're going to love. It's like, oh, my God. You have no self-perception ability. None. None. Like, she thinks when she's telling this story that I'm going to tell everybody about that time I really owned Trump on Twitter. I totally wrecked him. Pwned. It's like, uh, actually, if it was you versus Trump, you would be obliterated so thoroughly that it would be maybe the saddest thing we've ever seen in our lives. Like, you think you're folksy, you know, you're folksy like, soccer mom-sounding thing is going to work on that dude, you're going you're gonna to do these grandstanding, like, grandiose, way-too-drawn-out, long soliloquies, and he's just going to respond with, like, a quick one-liner and destroy you. This is the woman who the media has been telling us all along is, quote, the most electable. The most electable! The most electable. That ain't electable. That's, uh, that inspires nobody to really be excited to get out there and canvas for you and, and help you know, bring people in and then go vote for you and organize. That's going to inspire people. 
Inspiring Dickie McGee's act, bro. It's not happening. Bland corporate centrist through and through, all day long, every policy position. Just, I am the status quo. That's me. Return to normalcy with me. That mixed with no personality. (laughs) None. And, okay, again, I have to stress this point. It's not the fact that she has no personality and she's a loser is not the issue here. The issue is those are the that's the reality about her. But she thinks she's nailing it and she's like God's gift to this earth and she has some unique ability to take down a dude who would curb stomp her in a thousand ways in one debate. So uh, come on, man, come on now. Okay, uh, listen, I got to relax a little bit. You could say I'm reading too much into this. I'm being too unfair, too unkind to Amy Klobuchar. Um, you can believe that. You can say that, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> because, yeah, this is like, this is Amy, Amy, come on, come on. What are you doing here? I, and I'll get in trouble for it in the same way. Remember when I spoke about uh, Elizabeth Warren and her forced, awkward forced dancing, and they were like, you, how dare you tell a woman to be more authentic? Like, okay, you know what, take your PC outrage and shove it. I don't care. That was a super awkward dance, and you're lying to yourself if you're acting like it wasn't, and you're lying to yourself if you don't think it was forced. That was definitely her advisor telling her to do it, and then she tried to do it, and it was like, (laughs) all around. Um, In the case of Amy Klobuchar, I have no problem saying it. Super awkward, super loserish, but she also thinks she's the shit, and uh, it is... uh, beyond unbearable, which is why I sound right now like I can't bear it. Okay. Corporate media is, uh, is getting really, really desperate to take down Bernie Sanders. Uh, he's had a round of good polls recently. Actually, this is the second round of good polls. For the past like week and a half, two weeks, it's just been good poll after good poll after good poll for Bernie. In Iowa, New Hampshire, nationally, it's really, it's something else. So now it, I want you to ignore that and focus on fighting as if we're 10 points down because Overconfidence is our enemy for sure. So you got to keep fighting. You got to run through the tape. But the media is losing it. They're having a tantrum. They're having a conniption because they're like, oh my God, they're finally starting to realize at this late date, oh, he actually has a chance to win. So they're like, okay, all systems go, you know, unleash, unleash the nukes. We're going nuclear on Bernie Sanders and his uh, people. So here's the problem. Bernie Sanders has been in politics since roughly 1647, and he's been super consistent the entire time. He's had the exact same policy beliefs that he's advocated for, and all of those policies, almost all, I should say, maybe there's one or two that are not popular, but the overwhelming majority of his policies, right in line with mainstream American opinion, if you look at the, at the polls. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, and the wars, all super popular. They're super popular ideas legalized marijuana, so on and so forth. Um, so what do you do when you got a guy who's really popular, really consistent, and it looks like he can win, but 
he would really overturn the corrupt system, really expose the charlatan frauds in the media for what they are. What do you do? How do you fight back against them when there's no ammo there? Got to make it up. So what's been the attempt recently? Oh, old white guy. Therefore, let's hit him on race. Let's hit him on gender. Let's go all in on identity politics and political correctness because that's got to be a weak spot, right? He's an old white dude. So obviously he has to have retrograde beliefs, retrograde social beliefs. So Elizabeth Warren tried to say Bernie's uh, sexist. That was the whole scandal recently. Oh, my God, he's like secretly super sexist or whatever. She went down in the polls. He went up in the polls. Why? Because people heard of that and said, you're doing a hack smear job on him. I don't like it. Um, the media has been going on Bernie bro, Bernie bro, Bernie bro narrative. Now they've put that into hyperdrive, and it is wild to see. So the Washington Post did an article. Sanders supporters have weaponized Facebook to spread angry memes about his Democratic rivals. Users are using mass posting technologies to flood Facebook with attacks on Elizabeth Warren and others. The New York Times also released an, uh, a story exactly like this today. Today. Guys, I kid you not. I'm not joking. I wish I was joking. The cornerstone of some of the arguments they're making, particularly in the New York Times article, they said this almost exactly. Tweeting a snake emoji at Elizabeth Warren, they call bullying. I wish I was kidding. They call tweeting a snake emoji at somebody running for president bullying. The narrative they have settled on or are going all in on is the Bernie bro narrative. Oh, my God. So many of your supporters are so mean online. It's a national scandal and a tragedy. It's a tragedy and a national scandal. By the way, part of why they're doing this is also because all these professional media class people, the elite media people, their establishment, they write pro-establishment stuff, and now since we've democratized the national conversation with social media and Twitter, whenever they have bad takes, they get destroyed. Their mentions are just full of people going like, you're an idiot, you're a moron, you suck at this, why are you even doing this, tweeting funny things at them and, and, and memes and gifs and all types of stuff that if you scroll down under a, after a shitty take from an establishment media person, you will laugh your ass off at just how destroyed they get. Now, instead of you know, having minimal self-awareness and going, hmm, is it me? Did I do something wrong? What do they do? They go in the other direction 100 miles an hour. I will never admit fault ever about anything. And obviously the, the mob that's coming after me has to be wrong. It's a lynch mob. And that's what they go with. And this is the result. The result is goofy articles like this where the, the whole point of these articles, I, I read them, and they're stunning. They're like, and, and then in this pro-Bernie Sanders Facebook group, they said mean things about Mayor Pete, and they said the CIA supports him. And they call him Mayo Pete. Mm, the horror. And they say Elizabeth Warren stabbed her friend in the back. Well, they say all these things because they're true. The CIA does like Mayor Pete. They retweet his stuff all the time. We do call him Mayo Pete because that's hilarious. It's called people being people and having fun. Mr. You know, I fix bread prices and act like American psycho, Christian Bale and American psycho. Um, 
in the case of Elizabeth Warren, yeah, she pretended like she was for Medicare for All. Then she backed off of Medicare for All. She acted like Bernie is her friend and her close friend. Then she accuses him, implies, almost flat out says it, but just heavily implies, well, behind closed doors, he's actually kind of sexist. Right, the same guy who's been saying since 1987 in public, on video, that, oh, yeah, we need more women in politics, and it's changing, but not fast enough. That dude secretly behind the scenes is like, I don't know if you're cut out for the big league, league toots. It's so absurd, so ridiculous. Guys, it ain't us, it's them. It ain't us, it's the candidates who are, you know, imploding. They're self-destructing. And uh, I have a, a news flash for everybody. We're currently in a Democratic primary, and a Democratic primary is for figuring out who we like best. So voters choosing who they like best, this is all part of the process. Yeah, Mayor Pete says something dumb. Elizabeth Warren says something dumb. Joe Biden, barely coherent. We, we're allowed to point all that out in a democracy. We're allowed to have these discussions and make these jokes. That's allowed in a free and open conversation. But aha, they don't want a free and open conversation. They want to go back to what it was like before, which is when there was no social media, not everybody had a voice. Only a select few elitists who went through the proper university were able to get these jobs, yes. I'm from Cambridge. Actually, Cambridge is probably not the best example to use in the context of this conversation. I'm from Yale. I'm from Columbia. Yes. Where did you get your studies done, good sir? My grandfather, Hurston Howard IV, got me in on a legacy admission. <laughs> so they learn, oh, this is, how you, this is how you get into the national conversation, this is how you stay in the national conversation, and now all those rules are gone. Everything they thought they knew, all the right opinions that they've adopted over the years, now useless because you have you guys out there on Twitter calling out their BS, and me here on YouTube saying whatever I want, being as free as any human being could possibly be while talking about politics. And turns out when people watch this show, they like it a lot more than reading your shitty articles, which obviously have an agenda that you're trying to push on people. Again, the difference between us and them, I tell you my biases up front. I tell you what my beliefs are up front. I'm not trying to hide anything. I've described myself as social democratic, populist left, libertarian left. You know exactly what my beliefs are across the board. So I'm upfront, I'm honest with that. I tell you my bias. I tell you Bernie Sanders is my favorite. Every single person who's writing these articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times and elsewhere, they all have somebody that they support and that they want to vote for. None of them disclose it at all. None of them. There are Kamala supporters, there were Beto supporters, there are, you know, Elizabeth Warren supporters, there are Biden supporters, Pete supporters. They all exist in mainstream media. None of them have told you ever who they support. And then furthermore, how that would flavor their coverage. Instead, they write these articles, and I love it. They try to pretend like they're, they're, like, they're really serious, as if they're like really providing a service and they're really official. Like if you look at the wording in the Washington Post article, it's hilarious. They're talking about people being mean and making jokes on uh, Facebook as if it's like a real national scandal that Bernie should feel really bad for, and as if like, you know, uh, we spoke to experts on this kind of culture from this university, and they say, and it's like, oh, my God, you guys are trying to make this like an official-sounding thing as opposed to what it is, an establishment media with sour grapes that their candidates are not the preferred candidates. So it, with every attempt that they come after us and try to take us down, they make us stronger. 
And I love, just like I said in a similar segment, it's hilarious to me because they, they're just like Donald Trump supporters. And my first response to that is no, because we're not – we disagree on the policy. We're like the polar opposite of Trump supporters. But furthermore, is the charge that we're going to win? They're like, he has an army of supporters online, which is kind of like Trump. And Trump rode that momentum into the White House. So they make this criticism. It doesn't even occur to them. Like, oh, maybe this isn't even really a criticism. It's like, oh, my God, I'm acknowledging that this is the only person that has grassroots support. Guys, people are people. People are going to have fun. People are going to joke around. People are like this. This became a meme. This, remember with uh, Steyer? He was, like, trying to say hi to him after Elizabeth Warren had approached Bernie. And he's on this, yeah, good, okay. <laughs> that became a meme. That's so Bernie. He's like, yeah, good, okay. So people were using this a lot. Like, yeah, we're going to make fun of the candidates for silly things they say. You know, we're going we're gonna to mock the ones that are mockable. We're going to point out the flaws in their uh, policy beliefs. We're going to support our candidate. It's called engaging in politics. Not everything has to be... I'm so buttoned down and so serious. I never make jokes, ever. Why? That maybe you're just boring. Maybe you're just useless. Maybe your place in the national conversation is minuscule because of your own doing. You did that. You built that. You know, these legacy media outlets are struggling because this is the garbage that they write. It's endless. And they're they're not even trying anymore. Not even trying anymore. It's bullying to tweet snake emojis to Elizabeth Warren. And this culture has to stop. And by the way, always press the button. Misogyny, racism, bigotry. They're so misogynist. They're so bigoted. They're so racist all the time. Bernie Sanders is leading with women. And in some polls, leading with people of color. Definitely leading with people of color, younger people of color. They just erase all of those voices in one fell swoop. It's all the white bros. Like me? Oh, my God. Forget it. These guys despise me. Because I happen to be white and support Bernie Sanders. I happen to be male and support Bernie Sanders. So, boo, I'm the embodiment of all that's wrong. But they just erase all the people of color, all the women who support Bernie. It's all the Bernie bros, toxic masculinity online, bad people, bad. Well, there's a reason why our campaign is surging. Because all your, you know, all of your yelping and moaning about um, uh, political correctness and identity and all that stuff, it turns out actual human beings don't really care about the noise as much as they care about the fact that Bernie's going to eliminate their student loan debt. Bernie's going to eliminate their medical debt. Bernie's going to make sure we have free health care and free college in this country and we catch up to every other developed country. Bernie's going to make sure we have a living wage. So all the noise you make, the rude people online, so mean, so mean, doesn't mean any, it doesn't amount to anything because people see right through it. They do. And by the way, it's also hilarious with they are so vicious towards him and us. So vicious. When, if we respond to anything, it's immediately out of bounds and immediately racist and sexist and bigoted. This is how, this is how they operate. This is how they function. They get to say anything about us. We're not allowed to even respond to them. They're endlessly vicious towards us, and then they turn around and write articles about how vicious we are for joking around online and having fun. Spare me your fake outrage. I'm done with it.
All right, final story of the day. So I want to give you guys a little update on what's going on over at CNN. Um, apparently, Mike Pompeo recently flipped out at an NPR interviewer over her questions on Ukraine and impeachment. And um, CNN had a field day covering this. They thought this was like the biggest issue in the world and super important, and they wanted to d discuss it in long segments. So I just want to show you this clip of the discussion on this on CNN, you can see, you know, a little hint here as to how it's going to unfold. But here's what they're focusing on, on the network that's supposed to be the number one name in news. Uh, okay. In, in the statement, Rick, the last line, Pompeo's statement says, it is worth noting that Bangladesh is not Ukraine. First of all, Kelly has a master's degree in European studies from Cambridge University, Right. Also, he doesn't really say that she couldn't identify Ukraine on a map. He insinuates it's just a pe it's just a petty attempt to put her down, right? To, to, is that what this is? Of course, of course. It, it, it's it's a it's he's just trying to demean her, and it, obviously it's false. And look, he also knows deep in his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience, uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one in there. Y'all elitists are them. <laughs> you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling. Even though my math and you're reading. Yeah, you're reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte, all those lines on the map. <laughs> Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. Sorry, I apologize. But by the way, it was Rick's fault. I blame Rick. But in all honesty, but all, you blame you know what Rick, NPR should why do? not? Sorry, hold on. Wait, wait. Can I tell you? Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> that was good. Sorry. Rick, yep, that yep. was a good one. I needed that. I can't tell if that was serious laughter from Don Lemon or if he was faking it. But uh, either way, it was really awkward. And uh, the thing that made him laugh was the, you know, you could, Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you wrote you and put a picture of a crane by it. Is it just me? But I'm not, like, that was, that did nothing to me. Not even, like, a little, like, haha, <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm the one who's being sour grapes here or whatever. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But listen, the thing that really got me about this is when they started, they went deeper and deeper and they started talking about like Trump supporters who they called, quote, um, boomer rubes. And then they do like that fake Southern accent and they start mocking them about how like, yeah, you elitist and you're reading and all that stuff. And listen, on this show, we like to have fun. We have a hell of a lot of fun and we have it a lot. But when I watch this clip, I go, wow, they're doing stuff that makes people like Trump more. 
They're, they're pushing people into Trump's arms. They're being wholly dismissive of people, and they're, you know, making fun of them in a way that's malicious. Like, obviously, they don't view any, but all Trump voters, it seems to me, that they, all of them they view as, like, they're all lost causes, so they're nothing but ripe for mockery. And, uh, and that, that's what they do. They have fun at these people's expense. And then they wonder when election time comes and people like Hillary Clinton lose, they're like, what? How did that happen? I don't even know. Because look at how insular your fucking shitty group is. You know, pe- people like me, we, I get accused. We get accused of like, you guys hurt the left or whatever. Do we? Do we? Why? Because every now and then I'm uh, politically incorrect or I've made shitty jokes or I've said things that are, you know, uh, scandalous or controversial. Really? Because I'm, you know, I get a lot of responses from former Trump supporters, former right wingers who are like, hey, man, thank you. You got me out of this. And, you know, now I'm a Bernie supporter and and your arguments uh, convinced me and swayed me. So they accuse us of something that I think they're guilty of. I mean, that clip to me looks like they're they're so deep in their own bubble and they think everybody's like laughing along with them about, see how stupid the Trump voters are? <laughs> they can't do math or read. <laughs> and it's like, man, you guys are just as insufferable as the elitists on the right. The, establish- the establishment on the right, the, the Republican establishment and the, and the Democratic establishment, the elites across the board are equally insufferable to me, just in different ways. But one of the defining characteristics of the Democratic elites, which this panel strikes me as, is that they're totally uh, incurious about, and they're not really interested in improving people's lives and like actually trying to convince them and get them to their side and explain like why left policy positions are better. I don't think these guys even care about left policies necessarily. I want to speak about all of them. I don't know all of them. And maybe I'm being a little too unfair in that, in that criticism. But it strikes me like to them it's not about like politics is all about this game, this tribal game. It's not about like, oh, okay, let's actually fix problems and therefore improve people's lives. That, they're not about that. That's why they're just willing to like mock ruthlessly all the Trump supporters and do the you know, accent and all that stuff. And again, I'm not above mocking. I'm not above making fun of. I do it all the time. I'm just saying I think there's a difference between punching up and punching down. I think they're more punching down. Um, and how targeted your criticism is makes sense to do targeted criticism. When you do a broader criticism, all of a sudden it becomes less and less accurate, a little worse. Um, and also the last, just, you know, the total inability to reach beyond their own little subgroup, their own little social group here, where they love, laugh, ha, 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 isn't that so funny? Ha, 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 yeah, you and Crane, oh, Trump's so stupid, all oh, his supporters too. <laughs> ah, this is what CNN is now. It's just a wall-to-wall cringe fest. I see CNN and MSNBC is to the Democratic Party what Fox News is to the Republican Party, and I mean that. I never would have made that argument in the past, but it's gotten to that point where CNN and MSNBC are just Democratic Party apologists with nothing but shitty arguments and terrible criticisms, and, like, that's what they are. They're an insufferable little subgroup of elites 
who are in their own bubble sniffing their own farts thinking they're the best, and they're convincing nobody and turning people off. It's the same thing with Fox News to Republicans. Their own little bubble, you know, totally clueless to actual criticisms of them, strawmanning their opponents, all that stuff. CNN and MSNBC are Democratic Fox News, and I think this clip is such a good example of that. All right, guys, we are done. I love you, baby. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Much love. Peace.